1: is up everybody this is your boy Taryn Rodriguez bringing you another edition of Set Point Point. and as always we have ourselves a jam-packed show as we have a lot to get into such as UCLA men's volleyball they finally finally did it they finally broke through and they won the national championship good for John Sparrow's team and I got some crow to eat and how about USC beach volleyball they three-peated as they managed to win the beach volleyball championship. Good on them. Also, how about the NBA? We had some exciting matchups, ranging from the Las Vegas Ramblers 2 0 weekend to the Utah Stingers looking rather impressive. And we have some NCAA women's volleyball schedules to go over, and we have some high school volleyball. Schedules. Hand me a volleyball. Set to so next. I'm about to start in spoilable action here on Set Point. This is Order, we're going to bring you another edition of Set Point here on IE for Free. Your direct speed, all of that it's you. Cool. And welcome, one, welcome all to another edition of Setpoint. Thank you all for joining me on this beautiful Monday afternoon, Monday evening, Monday wherever you are listening from. Either way, you have made your way into episode 193 of Setpoint. Without any further delay, let us begin. But first and foremost, Setpoint would not be where it's at without IE Sports Radio providing the platform to go live on Spreaker. Please do follow IE Sports Radio on Twitter, Instagram, and on TikTok at IE Sports Radio. We also have a Facebook page for those that still use Facebook. All you just got to do is type in the word IE, then sports, then radio in the search bar. You'll see our icon, which is in black and white. Like us and follow us on Facebook. And then boom, that's how you're able to follow us and like us on Facebook. We also have a website, www.iesportsradio.com. And when you go there, you will see a Patreon link at the top. And if you choose to donate, donations will start at $5 a month. This will get you a shout out from all twenty six of our shows, including this one. And higher tiers include IE Sports Radio merchandise, access to ISRU, the Podcasting University of IE Sports Radio, and even a chance to be featured on a segment of our flagship show, The Defining Moment, with the one, the only Larry B. Because for the past eight years, with nine years coming up next week. IE Sports Radio has been bringing you amazing content ranging from interviewing legendary athletes, coaches, and other authorized media personnel to building tailor-made shows dedicated to all major sports cities around the country. All the while, we've been continuing to be by the fans and for the fans, and with your help, we are ready to take the next biggest step. Thank you to everyone for all of your support and for making IE Sports Radio your direct feed for all that sports. Shout out to our Patreon supporters, Bay Area Raised Apparel, Key to the Gate, Marcus Los Great, and a donor that wishes to remain anonymous. And with all that said and done, let us begin. If you are listening live on the Spreaker chat room, thank you for tuning in. Mike Paz is in the chat room. He says, have a great show. And Larry B is in the chat room. He's happy about USC and UCLA winning, mostly for USC. Unfortunately, he got the wrong show in as this isn't the SoCal Supreme Sports Show. This is Set Point, where I'm going to be talking about all things volleyball. And Abkar says, good evening, Taryn. Great write-ups over the weekend. Yes. For those that don't know, I actually do write-ups for the NVA, and I do recaps of all of the day events. Like, for event number two, I did a day one recap, day two recap, and then a day three recap, which is posted on the NVA's website. Definitely do check that out if you aren't busy. I try to put in a lot of time into that, and I try not to write too much, just because all of the games are on YouTube, I'll get into the NBA a little bit later, but first and foremost, we have some NCAA men's volleyball to go over. So pick up where we left off. We actually left off in the quarterfinals as Ohio State defeated King in straight sets, which means we only had six teams remaining. We had Grand Canyon versus Long Beach State, and then we had Penn State versus Ohio State, and then UCLA and Hawaii were just chilling in the semifinals. So jumping over to the quarterfinals, we had Long Beach State taking on Grand Canyon. So this was kind of an interesting matchup. Grand Canyon and Long Beach State only met one other time, and that was back in 2019 prior to this meeting where Long Beach State won. So in the first set, Grand Canyon managed to take that first set. They hardly trailed. It was tied ten times, but those lopes being really good out of the MPSF, they took the first set 25-22, but then in the second set, Long Beach State really took charge. They got off to an early lead and they never relinquished it. They took that second set 25-17. Third set, it was kind of more of the same. Grand Canyon tried to do all it can to make sure Long Beach State didn't pull away quickly in that first in that third set. But Long Beach State just straight up, I wouldn't say bulldozed their way to that third set, but they won it 22 or 25-22. Then the fourth set. It was close throughout most of the way, but Long Beach State got into the red zone and they basically were up 24-21, but then Grand Canyon won the next two points to only trail by one. But then Aiden Knipe had this amazing tight set to Simon Torwe in the middle, and that was how Long Beach State managed to beat Grand Canyon and their NCAA tournament hopes and advance to the semifinals, which... For me, I picked Long Beach State. This was no surprise that Long Beach State won. Grand Canyon to me was making its first ever NCAA tournament appearance and Long Beach State just had a lot of experience on their side, so unfortunately for the Lopes, the seas everything just kinda didn't really was against them. It was everything was against them for the most part, in my opinion. So for the Beach, they had four different players in double digits in terms of kills, as they were led by Clark Godbold, who had 13 kills. Sotiris Schiapanis and Spencer Olivier each had 12 kills. Simon Torwe added 10 kills on 11 swings, meaning he hit 900. The Beach as a whole, they hit 339, which was quite good. Aiden Knipe was orchestrating the offense quite well with 48 assists. They had two players crack double digits in terms of digs. Mason Briggs had 13 digs, while Spencer Olivier added 10 digs. For Grand Canyon, their offense was pretty strong as well, as Camden Gianni led the way with 18 kills. Jackson Hickman had 13 kills. Christian Janke 10 kills. Rico Wardlow, 9 kills. Grand Canyon did, however, only hit 258, which wasn't bad. But in that second set, they hit negative 31, which is no bueno. You cannot hit in the negatives or anything below 300 if you want to beat a team like Long Beach State. In terms of blocks, Long Beach State kinda had that category on lock as they out blocked Grand Canyon ten and a half to six and a half they out dug them forty one to thirty five and the aces were kinda the aces and airs were kind of close Grand canyon out aced them three to two but also out aired them sixteen to fourteen but overall it was, this was just long Beach state's match as They advanced to the semifinals where they will play UCLA. As for the second quarterfinal, we had Ohio State taking on Penn State. Now, I basically called this the Big Ten quarterfinal or the Big Ten championship. Even Mark Pavlik went on record and said this was the Big Ten championship. I know there is no Big Ten in men's volleyball. I don't need to be lectured on there is no Big Ten in men's volleyball. Y'all don't need to tell me otherwise. But Mark Pavlik even said it best. These two are Big Ten teams even though they are in, they their conferences aren't Big 10 they are classified as Big 10 teams so i don't want to hear anyone else saying otherwise anyway so the, for the first set i didn't really get to, get to watching all this match all that much cuz i actually did have to pa announce a high school boys volleyball match but the first set quite tight but penn state eventually took it 25-22 Second set was also tight, 12 ties, 6 lead changes. Ohio State squeaked that first set out, 26-24. Then in the third set, Penn State proved, showed why they were top 5 throughout most of the season. They won that third set, 25-13. Then the fourth set, it was just back and forth, but Penn State ultimately came out on top, winning that fourth set, 26-24, knocking off the Buckeyes, cooling them off and advancing to the final four. Penn State only had one player in double digits in terms of kills, but it, he, it was a big one as Cal Fisher led the way with 18 kills. Brett Wildman and Michal Kowal each had nine kills. But that was pretty much it. They didn't really have anyone else leading the way. It was just those three. We didn't have Toby Ezionu who... I did hear that he did tweak his ankle. He was battling an ankle soreness against George Mason in the EIVA semifinals. But it's a good thing they have those three players. I mean, Kowal is obviously is obviously not as he's not as old as Fisher or Wildman, but he is playing like an upperclassman. Cole Bogner set the offense up really well. Ryan Merck had 10 digs. As a team, Penn State hit three fifty nine, which was pretty good. They even had 10 service aces, three of which went to Fisher and Kowal. And they also had 13 blocks as a team compared to Ohio State's 4.5, which that kind of tells the story right there. Meanwhile, Ohio State had twenty kills from Shane Wetzel. That's when you know Ohio State just did not have that big night. Jacob Pastor had sixteen kills, but he had fourteen errors, probably due to the blocks that Penn State had and then the the next kill leader after Pastor was Cole Young and Justin Howard, both having seven kills as a team. Ohio State hit two fifty six after that third that second set they just weren't really the same. they just hit. Below 200, which is not going to really get the job done against a team like Penn State. The good news is for Ohio State was that they actually outdug their opponent, but the serve battle was just clearly won by Penn State. They only had four aces and they missed 22 serves. So Penn State advanced to the semifinals where they would play the likes of Ohio, or not Ohio State, Hawaii, which was a rematch from the Outrigger tournament in Hawaii, which was won by Penn State in four sets. But before that matchup began, Long Beach State and UCLA faced one another. And I'm just going to keep it short and sweet. This took place on Thursday, last Thursday. And long story short, UCLA turned Long Beach State inside out. They only trailed once throughout the entire match, and that was in the first set. Other than that, UCLA just tore Long Beach State apart. Like, I was at work when this match happened, and I when I got off, Long Beach State was pretty much on the verge of pretty much being defeated. UCLA won this match 25-16, 25-14, and 25-19. UCLA was led by Ido David, who had 17 kills. Ethan Champlin, 14 kills. Alex Knight and Merrick McHenry each had six kills. As a team, UCLA hit four fifty eight, which is what's going to make UCLA a roaring machine. And the big thing is is that UCLA had a great service error service ace ratio as they had 5 aces compared to only 6 service errors. And they also outdug Long Beach State 28 to 22. And even though they just barely got outblocked, it was just that type of night for UCLA. Everything clicked for them. They got off to hot starts. And unfortunately, Long Beach State just could not keep up. As for the beach, they were led by Sotiris Chapanis, who had 10 kills. Spencer Olivier had 7 kills. As a team, the beach hit 232. It's unfortunate because I thought Long Beach State would have given UCLA a much better challenge. But when UCLA is on their A game, they're not going to slow down for anybody. That's just the type of team that UCLA is. So, unfortunately for Long Beach State, their season ended. But I could see UCLA, or not UCLA, uh, Long Beach State being back on the big stage sooner rather than later. I think the beach has some good key pieces coming back. Obviously, Spencer Olivier graduates. Shane Holdaway, part of their middle blocker duo, graduates. And a few others graduate as well. So, for me, I think Long Beach State will be back. They return Shepanis and Clark Godbold, Aiden Knight returns, Mason Briggs returns. So I think for Long Beach State, they will be back on the big stage. I would not be surprised if they made the Final Four next year. And guess where the NCAA tournament is going to be held for men's volleyball? Long Beach! So they have all the motivation to make it back to that National Final Four. As for Penn State-Hawaii, so I actually got to see this matchup. Hooray! I got off work just in time, and I was able to get home, despite having to haul groceries in my hands, by, via...
2: With Lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time.
2: <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I
0: pronounce you Lucky.
2: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's
0: PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Walking home, I actually managed to make it home just in time for the Penn State-Hawaii Men's Volleyball semifinal. So the first set, Penn State was leading early, but then Hawaii just started to get it going. And they took that first set 25-20. Second set was kind of the same thing, except Hawaii was... It seemed like Hawaii had more of their sea legs in that second set. And despite Penn State holding off Hawaii's efforts to, you know, take that 2-0 lead, Hawaii just took that second set 25-23. Then the third set, Penn State reestablished themselves. They got off to a much better start, and they took that third set, 25-16. Then set four, it was just a dogfight throughout that fourth set. Part of me was really hoping it was going to go five sets. It's like, come on, give us a five-setter just because Long Beach State and UCLA gave us a bit of a wet fart of a match. And eventually Penn State was able to outlast Hawaii, take that fourth set, 25-23. And it went cinco sets. The only problem was is that Penn State in that 5th set, starting out, they could not make a serve to save their lives. Now, I know Penn State serves really aggressively, but unfortunately, I think their aggression just really kind of cost them. And I feel they kind of used up all of their energy in that 4th set. And it kind of happens just because Penn State, I would say that they're inexperienced when it comes to making the Final Four, but Hawaii's been on this Final Four stage. They've been to the Final Four the past four years. Uh, well, five years, uh, including this. Or no, four years. It was four years. Eventually, Hawaii took that fifth set 15-10. to 10, Just because Penn State dug themselves a big hole, or not a big hole, but a hole that they could not get themselves out of, as Hawaii eventually advanced to the national championship game, Hawaii was led by Demetrios Muclius or Demi or Demi, as they call him, he had 25 kills. The record for most kills in a semifinal was 28, from what I was told. So, unfortunately, Mucleus could not crack that that record, but he came oh so close. He also had nine errors. If a few of those errors kind of didn't kind of went his way, he might have cracked that record. But still, a great night overall. I also want to say that Demetrios or Demi, is going to be playing professionally after this season, so unfortunately for Hawaii, they do lose out on him, as well as Jakub Tele as, and Cole Hoagland, but I know Muclius is going to kill it on the professional level. I don't know where he's going to play, but I imagine it's probably going to be internationally. No, he's not going to play in the NBA, disappointingly enough, but I digress. Chaz Galloway added 11 kills. Spiros Hakas added 8 kills. As a team, Hawaii hit 298. I knew they were going to get a little bit of a challenge or a more better challenge from Penn State. Like, Penn State gave Hawaii all they could handle after that second set. Unfortunately for the Nittany Lions, it just wasn't enough. Hawaii outdug Penn State 48-37. to Galloway had 12 digs. Brett Stewart had 10 digs. In terms of blocking the ball, it was pretty close. Penn State had eight blocks compared to Hawaii's eight and a half as a team. Hawaii only had three service aces, and they missed 21 serves. But Penn State missed 27 serves, though. You could give them a little bit of a pass since they had 12 service aces, seven of which went to Brett Wildman, who led the team with 15 kills. Cal Fisher had 14 kills. Michal Kowal... I'm probably butchering his name, so I apologize. Mihal Kowal added 11 kills. As a team, Penn State hit 256. They hit 417 in the fifth set, but they only had six kills in 12 swings. So there was that right there. And overall for Penn State, it was a fantastic year. And even Mark Pavlik said that it was a special group. It's sad that one of those teams had to lose And this is a Penn State team that isn't going to... It's not going to be easy to replace those seniors, such as Cole Bogner, Cal Fisher, Brett Wildman. Obviously, they have Ho'all, Toby Ezeonu, Ryan Merck returning, John Kerr returns, Owen Rose, I think, returns as well. But it's just going to be tough to replace those super seniors from this year, just because they paved the way for... Penn State, from from this year and last year. Even though Penn State didn't make the NCAA tournament. Though I think they should have. <clears throat> anyway, so as for the NCAA Men's Volleyball Championship Final, or the National Collegiate Men's Volleyball Final, that consisted of UCLA, the one seed, taking on Hawaii. Every prediction I made on last week's show was correct up to this point. So for the first set, UCLA... Took the first set 28-26. It was a back-and-forth set. And believe it or not, you, Hawaii had a bunch of set points, and they led 23-20. And Paul Sunderland and whoever was his co-commentator, I apologize if I forgot your name, uh, they were saying, Hawaii's not the team that's going to be giving you four straight points. Well, they didn't give you four straight points. They didn't give UCLA four straight points. They gave them three. And that was what you what turned the tide. And for UCLA, if they don't get that 3-0 run and they don't tie that set up, I don't know if they win that first set just because you have to take that opening set because you have to have that momentum going into set two. And stealing that momentum from Hawaii was huge because in that second set, UCLA, the tur- the tables were turned. Hawaii was actually down a good chunk, a good chunk late in set number two, and then Hawaii eventually turned the tide, and they won set two, 33-31. Now, unfortunately, I was on the road, and I could not see the NCAA men's volleyball final as I had to PA announce a semifinal boys' volleyball match. I'll be talking about that a little bit more later. The third set, UCLA kind of reestablished themselves. They didn't really trail a whole lot as they took the third set, 25-21, and I'm just thinking... Hawaii might be in trouble. UCLA is actually playing pretty good as UCLA ran the middle. They ran the middle quite well. They utilized all their middles for the most part. They utilized Merrick McHenry, and they even utilized J.R. Norris IV. That was kind of the unsung hero right there. They used him mainly on offense, but J.R. Norris IV was key. He even had five service aces, but more on the stats a little bit later. But in the fourth set, Hawaii kept up their momentum, or UCLA kept up their momentum. Though it was tied eight times, but once they kind of wiggled out of the, once they wiggled their way in a double digits, they eventually pieced them their, they pieced the points together. They went up fifteen eleven at the media timeout, and they just never trailed ever again. They didn't really trail ever again, and try as Hawaii did, they just could not catch up to UCLA as. They take the fourth set, 25-21. And even though that Charlie Wade had one more challenge to delay the inevitable, UCLA took that national championship point off of an overpass kill from Merrick McHenry. And UCLA became the first MPSF team since UC Irvine back in 2013, when they were in the MPSF, to win a national championship in men's volleyball. So 10 years since the MPSF last won a Men's Volleyball Championship. So for the Bruins, they were led by Ido David, Ido David, who had 23 kills. Alex Knight, who was named the most outstanding player, he had 15 kills. He had 353. He also had six digs. Merrick McHenry, 11 kills. Also want to give a shout-out to one of my Twitter followers. He actually did call UCLA winning in four sets. I apologize if I forgot your name, but... Big props to you. You've even said that Merrick McHenry was going to be a game changer. I mean, he had eleven kills. He had two blocks, one service ace, three digs. J.R. Norris, the fourth, had eight kills, five service aces, and Ethan Champlin also had eight kills as well. As a team, UCLA hit three fifty-three. When we're the when UCLA's hitting in that three hundred mark, that's when they're deadly. When they're hitting three fifty or above That's when their offense is clicking. And Andrew Rowan, the National Freshman of the Year, 60 assists, one service ace, two digs, one solo stuff. Andrew Rowan is going to be exceptionally well just because I forget which Partain was. I think it was Miles Partain, the setter of the Partain brothers. He unfortunately quit halfway through the season, and Andrew Rowan was able to take over. And he was one of my players that I talked about. I was like... Andrew Rowan is, what, six eight six nine, and that's t- pretty tall for a setter. And when you're naturally gifted at that height and you're a setter, man, you're going to be something special either in the future or if Coach calls your name and you have to set right away, go do your thing, Rockstar. So as for Hawaii, they were led by Demetrios Muklias, who had 18 kills. Spiros Hakis had 12 kills. Jazz Galloway, 11 kills. As a team, Hawaii hit 299. Jakub Telle did get that one service ace as he became the all-time service ace leader at Hawaii as he stands above and alone. I thought he had got the service ace earlier in the match, but I guess that doesn't count as a service ace, which kind of sucks. So I jumped the gun early, but he eventually got the service ace. It would have been very funny if he didn't get that one service ace, and then that would have been a major awkward moment saying that he was the all-time service ace leader. Uh, Bad takes would have probably snapped, f- screenshotted my tweet. Anyway, um, Cole Hoagland had six kills. Girmay Voss, eight kills. Hawaii only had three service aces. Well, UCLA had a whopping ten. Like I said, half of them came from J.R. Norris, the fourth off the bench. Hawaii barely outdug UCLA forty-eight to forty-seven, but they did outblock them eleven to five and a half. Unfortunately, it just was not enough for Hawaii, as Hawaii just sadly could not threepeat. Their chances of 3 feeding just fell short to the Bruins, as the Bruins were kind of long overdue for a championship. It was just way too long for since the Bruins last won, as they won championship number 20, which is the most in all NCAA men's volleyball programs right now and in the past, because we can't forget about San Diego State, who managed to win a national championship back in the 70s over Long Beach State. Shout out to Marcus Great who popped in the live speaker chat room. Thank you for popping in, saying salute. All right, so let's talk about UCLA for a bit. First and foremost, I have some crow to eat. I picked Hawaii to win over UCLA. First and foremost, UCLA fans, I'm very sorry for picking against the Bruins. I thought Hawaii was a little bit more spry. I thought they were playing so much better, I thought being in a conference with UC Irvine and Long Beach State, both of which were top five teams, was kind of going to be the difference maker. I really thought that Hawaii had that edge over UCLA, but unfortunately for the Bows, they just could not keep up with the Bruins in this match. Now, obviously, if you play this match nine times out of ten, you never know what's going to happen, but for the Bruins, they just were the better team. And you know what's scary about the Bruins? Most of this team comes back except for Alex Knight. You want to know who else was a key factor? Troy Gooch. He had a whopping 15 digs. He passed really well for UCLA. If if the Bruins don't have Troy Gooch, and this is going to sound like a stretch, but if UCLA does not have Troy Gooch as he transferred from Purdue-Fort Wayne, I don't know if UCLA wins that match. Just because passing is so key, and you have to have that big-time libero. Ethan Champlin also chipped in eight digs, and Ido David, to his credit, he had eight digs. Alex Knight, like I said, he had six digs. For UCLA, this is going to be a scary team next year, and if the trend continues of back-to-back champions, UCLA is probably going to be a heavy favorite to win it next year. Just because you had... Hawaii winning back-to-back champions last year and the year before. Before that, we had Long Beach State winning back-to-back championships in 2018 and 2019. We had Ohio State winning back-to-back championships in 2016 and 2017. We had Loyola winning back-to-back championships in 2014 and 15. We had UC Irvine winning back-to-back championships in 2012 and 2013. So if this trend continues... UCLA could be on its way to winning a national championship in Long Beach next season. And I talked this over with Nick England and the rest of the NVA crew. It's crazy that UCLA returns most of its team minus Alex Knight. Alex Knight is the only guy on that offense that doesn't return. And I think Alex or Troy Gooch also doesn't return as well. But I know Hide Nakamura the libero slash outside hitter slash key guy for Orange Coast College is going to be transferring to UCLA, and he's going to vie for minutes at UCLA. And honestly, I would not be surprised if he was the starting libero for next season. David C. Crooks, the host of Fast Break of IE Sports Radio, pops in the chat room. He says, what's good? Just recapping UCLA-Hawaii in the national championship. But for UCLA, this is going to be... Plus. A very, very interesting season next year. They are going to have a lot of expectations. They have Andrew Rowan coming back at center position, where he basically had a dynamite freshman year. Like UCLA it has everything going for them. They've got veteran leadership, they've got the coaching staff. The list goes on and on for the Bruins. And the scary part is, is that they're probably gonna have a better recruiting a bigger recruiting class. So UCLA is gonna have dubious immortality going forward next season, and I really can't wait to see the Bruins next year, and I can't wait to talk to John Sparra about next season. And honestly, if I do happen to get John Sparra on the show, whether it's on my 200th episode of Set Point or whenever, I will let him stick it to me because honestly, I really feel bad for picking against UCLA. I really think I underestimated UCLA in this match just because the Bruins are definitely a good team. I just thought that Hawaii being in a conference with two top 5 teams, having beaten UCLA earlier, having learned a little bit of a lesson against Penn State, and they're only lost in Big West Conference play to Long Beach State. That was when they had a few guys sick. I thought Hawaii was just playing some darn good volleyball as no, Marcus, I'm not letting – I'm not meaning it like that. As in, I'm going to let John Spira. L- <laughs> what I'm trying to say is I'm going to let John Spira let me eat more crow when he gets onto the show. And basically, I'm going to tell it to him – tell it to him like it is. So I don't mean it like that. So when I say stick it to me, I mean I'm just – I'm telling him – I'm just saying I'm going to let him, like, eat. Mo- let me eat more crow. Anyway, so for UCLA, I just thought they were the better team. They just looked so much better. They passed a better game. And honestly, they just looked fantastic against Hawaii. Now, going to the other side, Hawaii, they played a great game. But honestly... They played great, but they just were missing that second gear. I don't know what they were missing. They were serving tough. They only missed thirteen serves. They blocked really well. They dug as best as they could. Brett Short had sixteen digs. Jakob Tele did all that they could against UCLA. He had nine digs, fifty assists, and the dude really wanted to win the national championship one last time before he moved on to professionally. But for Hawaii, it just wasn't enough. I think for Hawaii, they were playing great volleyball because I talked with Paul Sunderland back in the Big West Conference Tournament. Paul Sunderland was the guy that called the Big West Conference Tournament as well as the volleyball matches on ESPN. Excuse me for a second. Sorry. And he said Hawaii was playing great volleyball, and they're built to win. For the Rainbow Warriors, they have nothing to be ashamed of. They had a great season. They put everyone on notice. And it is going to be tough losing the likes of Demetrius Muclius and Jakob Tele and Cole Hoagland. He was great in the middle. And the big question mark for Hawaii is who's going to be the setter next year? They've got quite a number of players for next year. They've got Josh Friedman, who transferred from Orange Coast College. They've got Tred Rosenthal, who's a 6'8", 6'9", setter, who's coming out of Miracosta High School. Maybe they'll groom him and develop him as a setter slash opposite. Maybe have him as an Andrew Rowan Jr. They also have Brett Stewart, who maybe could play the setter position, but then who's going to play Libero? So overall for Hawaii, they have some question marks, but they've got some players they return. Now, I'm not going to try to guess which ones are which, just because ev- and any- anything can happen going forward into the future, just because the dead period is kind of now, and we don't know what's going to happen going up until next January when the next... NCAA men's volleyball season begins, which is what? It's May May 8th, as of this recording, and then January of 2024 is like eight months away. Anything could happen. Like, transfers could happen. Players quitting could happen. Players getting professional deals could happen. Players choosing to not take their, their COVID year could happen. All that sort of thing could happen. But for Hawaii, I still think they have a bright future, and don't be surprised if they make it back to the Final Four. I could see Hawaii make it back to the Final Four. Do I think they can win the national championship? Perhaps. But you've got Long Beach State that returns a good portion of its players from last year. UC Irvine, I think, could challenge their way, so long as they don't lose the big-time matches when it truly matters, which hurts their RPI and whatnot. You also have the likes of Stanford possibly being good next year. BYU was a surprise team. Penn State, they have some question marks, but they could be good next year. Ohio State could be good next year. The list goes on and on in terms of teams that could be contenders for possible NCAA men's volleyball champions. But we'll see what happens come next year. Like I said, it's a long time before January, which is the start of the NCAA men's volleyball season in two thousand twenty-four, but for right now, congratulations to UCLA on winning its twentieth national championship. John Sparrow finally wins an NCAA men's volleyball championship with UCLA after he won one with UC Irvine. So hats off to him, and hats off to his entire coaching staff, and hats off to his team and. I will gladly admit I was wrong. And UCLA fans, y'all have every right to to let me have it, to basically just tell me I was wrong. I will totally, totally take it with a grain of salt. That's what I'm trying to refer to. I, I'm going to take being wrong with a grain of salt. That's my terminology of stick it to me. So, anyway... Let's jump on in. That's pretty much that for all of the NCAA Men's Volleyball Tournament. It was a fantastic tournament, and I can't wait for Long Beach next year. To The ABCA Men's Volleyball Coaches Poll this is the last one of the season as we have the top 15 of the National Collegiate Coaches Poll as 15 through 11 consists of King at 15, Princeton at 14, Loyola at 13, USC at 12, and Ball State at 11. 10 through 6 consists of Pepperdine at 10, Stanford at 9, BYU at 8, Ohio State at 7, and Grand Canyon at 6. 5 through 1 consists of UC Irvine at 5, Long Beach State at 4, Penn State at 3, Hawaii at 2, and your number one team in the final 2023 NVA slash AVCA Men's National Collegiate Coaches poll is. UCLA. So the Bruins are all on top of the world, and honestly, they deserve it. Good for them. For Hawaii, they're basically right where they belong. Penn State gave Hawaii all that they could handle, and Long Beach State, they unfortunately got rolled in the semifinals. I'm not trying to insult Long Beach State, but I'm just going to say I kind of expected better. UC Irvine, even though they didn't even make the NCAA tournament, they are still a top-five team, And they definitely deserve to be a top five team as John or David Niffen called it. He said that if his team, whether or not his team gets into the NCAA tournament, his team is a top five team. So good for UC Irvine. Grant Canyon finishes sixth, which if they had beaten Long Beach State, they probably would have been fifth or fourth, most likely fourth. And the list goes on and on. I'm happy to see King getting into the top 15 just because they made the NCAA tournament. If you make the NCAA tournament, you have to be included in the top fifteen coaches poll or top whatever coaches poll is. Like they played pretty darn well against Ohio State, so hats off to the Tornadoes and hats off to Ryan Booher's team. So that's that for NCAA men's volleyball. I never thought it would end like it would be ending like this. I can't wait for next season, as your boy is going to do all that he can to make the NCAA Men's Volleyball Tournament next year. Especially, I, I did hear that the, uh, the, semi, the semifinals and final is going to be at Long Beach State. I don't know about the quarterfinals. I don't know how that's going to work. I mean, how is that going to work? Are they going to have home sites? If that's the case, then... Ew. That's going to be tricky, if you ask me. It's it's going to have to be a two-week event. Like, it can't be a two-week event. Like, that's just... That's unnecessary. I'm just saying. Anyway, so that is that for the NCAA men's volleyball side of things. Let's jump on over to some NCAA beach volleyball. So, for the NCAA beach volleyball side of things... We had the NCAA tournament from last week. I kind of don't like how the NCAA beach volleyball tournament has to be on the same week as the same week as the NCAA men's volleyball tournament, just because it's a little inconvenient. Uh, especially since die-hard volleyball fans like myself have to choose between picking one or the other, and then for NVA fans, they have to throw that into the mix as well. All right. So for the tournament, we had Texas A&M Corpus Christi upsetting UT Martin. I use the term upset very loosely just because it's 17 versus 16. But Texas A&M Corpus Christi beat UT Martin 3-0. So they advanced to in the play-in round. So they advanced to the first round where they played UCLA. So in the first round, UCLA beat Texas A&M, Corpus Christi, 3-0, which was kind of expected. Not trying to diss Texas A&M, Corpus Christi, but it's like you're facing the number one seed and UCLA hasn't really skipped a beat. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. And then below them, they Cal edged out Long Beach State 3-2 which I expected was going to be a dogfight. I had a feeling Cal was going to beat Long Beach State. And this is no disrespect to Long Beach State. I thought Long Beach State was going to give them all they could handle. Unfortunately, Cal, being so battle-tested in the Pac-12, really benefited from that. They beat the likes of USC. They beat the likes of Stanford. That was the key right there, because Long Beach State had that week off, and the week before, they beat, won the Big West Conference tournament. And don't get me wrong, that's good and all, but your only good team that you beat was Hawaii. Not trying to diss UC Davis or Cal Poly or any of those other teams, but it's like, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. So Cal kind of got the edge over Long Beach State in the final final matchup in the duel. So that was how Cal was able to beat Long Beach State. Then below that matchup, we had LSU narrowly escaping against Florida Atlantic, a.k.a. FAU, as they won that matchup 3-2. Yeah, FAU almost did what the men's basketball did, pull off an upset. Unfortunately, the clock struck midnight, and LSU managed to end the season for the Owls as they wound up winning 3-2. I kind of expected LSU to win this matchup, but I didn't expect them to win in that close fashion. Then below that matchup, we had Florida State defeating Florida International 3-1. No surprise there. It's just that I kind of am surprised Florida State had lost one. But, hey, what can you do? It's the NCAA tournament. So we got the rivalry of Florida State versus LSU. Apparently in NCAA Beach Volleyball, that's one of the biggest rivalries outside of USC and UCLA, which I totally understand that just because the two are in the same conference and whatnot. Then below Florida State, Florida International, we had USC beating Georgia State 3-0. Now I don't want to be disrespectful to Georgia State, but again, beating they had the honor or dishonor of playing USC, the number three seed, and two-time reigning champion. Unfortunately, they would have had to play some really good volleyball if they wanted to pull off another upset. Sadly, that wasn't meant to be, and unfortunately for the Panthers, USC just got the better of them. Now for Hawaii LMU, a.k.a. Lila Marymount, that actually got pushed to Saturday because of the storms in Gulf, Coast, Gulf Shores, Alabama. So we're going to skip that one. But for Stanford-Grand Canyon, this was the upset of the of, fr- of the first round and the only upset of the first round as Stanford took down Grand Canyon 3-2. to I kind of called this one right here. I called this one and I said, don't be surprised. Do not be surprised if Stanford wins. And I even said Stanford was going to beat Grand Canyon. It's nothing against Grand Canyon, but Stanford was battle-tested in the Pac-12 tournament
2: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions
1: 18+. Yes, Grand Canyon did beat TCU in the 2CSA tournament, but I just thought Stanford having that win over UCLA really boosted their confidence, and it really proved that Stanford was for real. And there had to have been one upset in the first round. We couldn't have gone one round without an, without an upset. So... I had to pick an upset, and sadly, Grand Canyon had to be that one. It was still a great year for Grand Canyon, but Stanford, with the likes of Charlie Ekstrom and Kate Riley and whatnot, they just got the job done. And then TCU defeated Stetson, which was a which which was a three nothing win. It was quite convincing. And then for Hawaii. Loyola Marymount Loyola Marymount wound up winning early Saturday morning which was no surprise even not even sto- a storm could stop LMU which forced LMU to basically win on the next day. So LMU advanced to play USC. So my first round matchups were complete bullseyes. Then for the quarterfinals we had UCLA beating Cal 3-1. Now UCLA was I saw this matchup in the hotel before I left to go to the NVA matches. I was very surprised UCLA was struggling, but I also had to remember, remember Cal and UCLA played one another the week before in the PAC 12 tournament finals. And Cal gave everything that UCLA could handle, except not really UCLA swept them, but Cal had a better understanding of what UCLA had to offer. So UCLA, kind of struggled early on but they eventually picked themselves up they dust they brushed themselves off and they won 3-1 over Cal which was not ultimately surprising then below that we had Florida State defeating LSU 3-nothing kind of surprised LSU didn't really take them down to the wire but at the time it was pretty much Florida State had a whole lot of players returning which I knew Florida State was going to win, but I just did not expect LSU to lose right away. They lost before they could even register a win, so it's not ultimately surprising that Florida State won. Then we had USC defeating LMU 3-1. to It's no surprise that USC won just because history has favored USC over the Lions, USC has won, what was it, 27 or 28 consecutive matches, and they have not lost once to LMU, which that's actually the most wins over a Division I program in, I want to say, any sport, if not beach volleyball. So for USC, it was just a dominating, I wouldn't say dominating, but they've dominated LMU. They did have one close call against the Lions this year, but USC just has the Lions' number. And then TCU, to, not to my surprise, beat Stanford 3-0. So, yeah, nothing against Stanford, but TCU was just way too good for them. Stanford did have that great win over Grand Canyon, but TCU is just, just on a whole nother level. Then jumping over to the semifinals, which actually was played the same day as the quarterfinals. UCLA beat Florida State 3-0. UCLA just got off to a fast start in the first part of the duel, in all the first sets of the duel, and there was no turning back for the Bruins. They basically won those first sets, and it was basically GG no re for the Bruins. For Florida State, it doesn't take away that they had a fantastic season, but I will also say this: they just didn't have the magic to take down the Bruins. UCLA just was stacked all across the board. Whether it was the one pair or the two pair or the five pair, UCLA was just all over the place, and they were not skipping a beat. Yes, they had that one match where they kind of, or they they had that one duel where they struggled against Cal, but honestly, UCLA was just a machine. So the Bruins advanced to the national championship match. Now for their opponent. It was down to TCU and USC. USC won the first point. Then TCU won the second point. Then I think USC won the third point. I didn't really get to see a whole lot of that match after the second point that TCU won. And then TCU forced a tiebreaker. Well, it came down to the final point between Audrey Norse and Nicole Norse versus TCU's pair and USC eventually clinched the duel by winning the winning at the 3s courtesy of the Norse twins. So that was kind of my only blemish as of that point. I did not expect USC to beat TCU. Now, obviously when TCU and USC played, USC did not have Megan Kraft who was partaking in a I think it was an international beach tournament. I don't think it was AVP. But they did not have Megan Kraft, so they had to reshuffle their lineup. But for USC, they got the redemption. They defeated TCU. And it came down to just UCLA and USC, which I should have known better. When it comes to USC and UCLA and beach volleyball, that's the only fitting matchup for the NCAA Beach Volleyball Championship. So the final consisted of USC versus UCLA. And fortunately, I was able to watch good bits and pieces of this, even though I was working the NVA. So the first two points, this is how the NCAA Beach Volleyball Championship works. They go two and four pairs first up. And then after that, it goes one, three, and five. So basically, the even pairs face off against one another, and then the odd pairs face off against one another. Which I don't ask why. That's just how the NCAA Beach volleyball committee does it. So <laughs> But for USC, here's here was my thing. USC has some players on that team. They've got some talent. My thing was, can USC stack up to UCLA? That was my only big concern for the Trojans, just because they lost so much to graduation last year. And UCLA just had lots of firepower. But my thing was is that UCLA kind of shuffled their little – they shuffled everything around, whereas for USC, they – I wouldn't say they shuffled everything around. I think they kept everything as was, but instead of having the Norse Twins at the two pair, they had them as the three pair, which was basically what they were doing all tournament. They had Team Madison at the two pair, Madison Shields and Madison White. And then the four pair consisted of Jenna Johnson and Ashlyn Racenick Pope. And then the five pair was Olivia Bakos and Gabby Walker. One pair was clearly Megan Craft and Delaney Maple, which was basically your your starting lineup for USC. Now, for UCLA, here is my thing for UCLA. They were just so – they had so much firepower, and they had all kinds of talent across the board, such as Lexi Denneberg, Jaden Whitmarsh, Devin Newberry. The the list goes on and on, and honestly, I felt that this this was their time to shine. It's like there's no way they can – whiff on this. They, they also had Abby Van Winkle, Perry Brennan, Riley Powers, Haley Hallgren. If you don't know Haley Hallgren's story, please go look it up. It's such a great story. Alright, so the twos and the fours pair. So first set, USC takes the first set in the twos and fours pair. And then in the in the twos pair, UCLA forces the third set. But then in that third set, Madison Shields and Madison White managed to defeat Perry, Brennan, and Abby Van Winkle. Now, that's a big deal because Van Winkle and Brennan had not lost at the twos all season. That was probably the worst time to lose at the twos. And then at the fours, Jenna Johnson and Ashlyn Racenick-Pope swept Jesse Smith and Marley Monterey. So just like that, USC is up 2-0 and UCLA is down 0-2. And all USC just needs to do is win one more match and then they're national champions. And I'm just thinking, how did USC do this? How did? He, and I'm just wondering, UCLA done messed up because USC has Delaney Maple and Megan Kraft, who is arguably the best pair in the nation in NCAA Beach Volleyball. Then you've got the Norse Twins who are at the threes, and that's pretty much that. I basically said on Twitter via the set point account at set underscore point I E if UCLA wants to win, they have to win at the ones and the threes because if they don't, they're sunk. So for UCLA, they actually kind of did that. They actually, their one pair, Maggie Boyd, who was the Pac 12 freshman of the year and Lexi Denneberg defeated Megan Kraft and Delaney Maple. That was kind of their golden moment. They took the first set. Well, Denneberg and Boyd took the first set against Kraft and Maple. And then Devin Newberry and Jaden Whitmarsh, who actually was the... I think they played two pair, and then they had to slide down to being the five pair. They took the first set against Bakos and Walker, which was no surprise. But the Norse twins and Riley Powers and Haley Hallgren, that actually went the way of Audrey Norse and Nicole Norse. So at the moment, through those first sets... All USC needed to do was win one more set at the three pair, and then USC is national champion. Jumping over to the, fir- to the ones pair, USC actually loses the f- the match at that at that pair as Maggie Boyd and Lexi Denenberg take the second set. And then at the five pair, Devin Newberry and Jaden Whitmarsh, not to my surprise, take the second set against Olivia Bakos and Gabby Walker. Then at the three pair, Riley Powers and Haley Hallgren take the second set. So, in case you're keeping score, it's 2-2 between UCLA and USC in the duel altogether. And it comes down to the third set. USC, UCLA going to 15 points. Whoever wins is national champion, and whoever loses is the runner-up. Which, I feel that's a little redundant. And I even said on Twitter, the national champion is either going to be a three-peater a.k.a. USC, or it's going to be a reverse sweeper in UCLA. The That third set between the Norse Twins and Riley Powers and Haley Hallgren was just a heavyweight boxing match. It was just back and forth, back and forth, but then it was tied 6-6. The Norse Twins score three straight. It's 9-6, and they could have made it 10-6, and that could have been the nail in the coffin, but I forget which Norse Twin it was, I want to say it was like Nicole. I'm not gonna really judge who it was. She hits it in. She hits the ball into the net, and I'm just thinking, "Oh my goodness, that could have been the nail in the coffin." Because when you're down four points to to a pair that is just legitimately good, that's pretty much the nail in the coffin, and you're just five points away from defeat. That's Gigi Re. Eventually, the Norse twins won the third set against Haley Hallgren and Riley Powers, 15-11, to and the celebration was on for USC as they managed to upset – I use that term very loosely, considering when it comes to UCLA and USC, all bets are off. They managed to beat UCLA 3-2 to in instant classic fashion, and man, what a match that was. It's like I thought that UCLA was going to pull off the reverse sweep, but UCLA unfortunately fell short – I will eat my crow when it comes to the Trojans. I thought that USC just didn't have the horses to keep up with the likes of like TCU or UCLA. But I was wrong. I thought I thought wrong. I thought UCLA was just too strong for everybody. Just because they had such a great lineup. Even when they shifted their lineup of Perry Brennan and a- Abby Van Winkle for Devin Newberry and dit De- Jaden Whitmarsh. They just had such a great lineup. I think their only weak link, and, and that's a very loose link. Yeah, weak link. Their only weak link on their team in terms of those five pairs was the four pair, in my opinion. But that's a very strong weak link, just because Marley Monterey is just a phenomenal player, and she... When she made the transition from indoor to beach, and Jesse Smith is only going to get better. But everyone else is basically solid. But for USC to win that match is just incredible, on that stage, when it truly mattered. Because you got to remember, UCLA had beaten USC four out of five times this in that season. They even beat him in the Pac-12 tournament. But the fact that USC came up big. On that big of a stage, on national TV, even when UCLA had turned the tables on them, it's just incredible. And you got to give credit to Dane Blanton. He's just a fantastic coach. He really knows what he's doing, and he even said it post-game. He said, if it comes down to the final pair, I want the Norse twins on that court. And Nicole and Audrey Norse are just fantastic, and they wore... If you see on their visor, it says 8 and 24. They admired Kobe Bryant, the late Kobe Bryant, and they strive to be.
2: No purchase necessary. BDW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
0: Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the
2: deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.
1: against UCLA. And the funny thing was about UCLA and all the other matches, outside of the LMU match, just because when they played against LMU, their match eventually ended before their match... Their match against LMU ended before they got to finish off in the duel. They closed out every match or in the duel. They basically clinched the duel for USC in every NCAA tournament match. They clinched it against Georgia state. They clinched it against TCU. And then they clinched it against UCLA. And for me, that was just incredible right there. It just goes to show that the Norse twins are just on a whole nother level. So congratulations to USC for three peating. They have won five out of the past seven NCAA beach volleyball champions. UCLA is the other two recipients of the national championship. Now, for UCLA, what does this mean for them? It means that they tried their hardest. Excuse me for one sec. It means they tried their hardest. They did all they could against the Trojans or the women of Troy. Unfortunately, they just fell short. And when it comes to rivalry matches, all bets are off. And there's nothing to hang their hats over. They had a fantastic year. I just really thought that they were stacked all across the board. But losing in, losing that match in the two pair, that was what really hurt them. Because when you're down 0-2, you're now having to hope that you win on the ones and threes pair. Like I knew they were going to win on the fives pair. Because Jaden Whitmarsh and Devin Newberry are both fantastic. Winning on the ones and threes was going to be a battle. Lexi Denneberg and Maggie Boyd had to dig deep. And then Haley Hallgren and Riley Powers, they had to dig deep. Unfortunately, Hallgren and Powers just could not get that job done. But I really thought that UCLA had that reverse sweep going. I was just like, oh my goodness, UCLA could actually pull off the reverse sweep. But for the Trojans... You never doubt the heart of a champion. So I just really think that SoCal is just rich with NCAA Beach volleyball. Not just with USC and UCLA, but you also have LMU that's really good. Shout out to John Mayer for the great job that he's done. Long Beach State is is building its program up. Like winning the big west is No easy feat. I mean, yes, I bashed the Big West just because they don't have the horses like the Pac-12 does or the West Coast Conference does. But it's still a conference tournament win. Like, you can't sneeze at that fact. So all in all, for Southern California in terms of NCAA Beach Volleyball, we should be really grateful that we have these types of teams. But as for USC... I wonder what they're going to do in terms of trying to for just because how do they for <laughs> I mean, time will tell. I mean, I feel they could for but it's all going to depend on who stays and who goes and what their incoming class is going to look like. But we'll see. Anyway, that's going to do it for some NCAA beach volleyball. I will say this about T... Te- I will say this, TCU, you don't want to underestimate. Don't overlook TCU. I think they'll be back next year. Uh, Their top pair got AVCA pair of the year, and their head coach just got AVCA coach of the year. I really think that TCU is going to be back next year. At least they did not have the year that – they did not have the NCAA tournament run like last year, where they wound up winning one match, and then they wound up getting decimated by GCU and Georgia State. Like that was disappointing, and that's no disrespect to TCU or Georgia State or Grand Canyon, but the fact that TCU made the semifinals of the NCAA tournament was quite phenomenal. Also, I have to give a shout out to Stanford for winning their first ever NCAA tournament match, as I did not know that they wound that that that, that NCAA tournament win was their first ever. So. I made the right call by picking the upset over Grand Canyon. (laughs) But I do remember in an interview that Charlie Ekstrom had with I guess Stanford, I guess? Where she came in to to the Stanford Beach Volleyball Program. She said that the Stanford Beach Volleyball Program had like a few or so wins and they didn't even come close to making the NCAA Tournament. And then COVID happened and then Eventually, the wind started piling up with Charlie Ekstrom and company as the years went on. So, heaven knows what's going to happen with Stanford and the rest of the other teams that made the NCAA tournament. I think LMU is another team that could possibly make some noise, like I mentioned with SoCal being so great in terms of NCAA Beach Volleyball. Cal is also on its way up. Hawaii could be good, maybe Cal Poly that didn't even make the tournament could be good as well, but time will tell. All right, so that's gonna do it for some NCAA beach volleyball. Let's take ourselves a quick little commercial break. When we come back, when we come back, I'll be discussing some high school boys volleyball. Got some NCAA women's volleyball schedules to break down, and we have some NVA to recap. So keep it locked here. You are listening to. Set point here on IE Sports Radio, your direct feed for all that sports. We'll be right back after this. <music>
0: Hey, sports fans. Do you like wine? Well, we've got the show for you. This is Let's Wine About Sports, a show where we talk about wine and sports simultaneously, from the classic Cabernet Sauvignon all the way down to the grapes that you've never even heard of before. Oh, yeah, we cover it all. And we'll talk about a little bit of sports as well. Football, hockey, collegiate women's sports it doesn't matter we're gonna talk about it all and we're gonna whine about it all so join me monday at 8 p.m on iu sports radio your direct feed for all that is sports ladies and sinners, hello sports fans around the world, hello IE Sports family. This is Cale Henderson, the host of IE Vegas, the Sin City Sports Show, presented by IE Sports Radio. If you folks are interested in sports in the Vegas area, if you're wanting to have a blast for one hour, every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, This is a show built for the Vegas sports fans, where we feature the Las Vegas Raiders, the Las Vegas Golden Knights, the Las Vegas Aces, and the University of Las Vegas, Nevada, Rebels. Hopefully, fingers crossed, MLB team coming soon. Either way, if you folks are looking to have a blast for one hour each and every week, tune in Tuesday, 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you folks are interested in Vegas sports news, Go to our Twitter at SinCities underscore I E S R, and you can speak with me, the host, Kale Henderson, at Kale underscore Henderson on Twitter at any time. Be happy to reply. Always willing to reach out to our fans. Again, the Sin City Sports Show presented by IE Sports Radio, your direct feed for all that is sports. Sports
2: fans, do you like teams that are tough, cities that are tougher, and fan bases that are passionate about their teams? How about teams that are historic, and stadiums that are iconic? Then you belong in Chicago, and you need to check out Chi-Town Weekly. Join me, Adam Kernan, every week as we keep up with all things Chicago sports. Bears, Bulls, Blackhawks. Cubs, White Sox, we'll cover them all plus more. The Windy City is always buzzing and we'll keep you up on all the big games and major stories. So tune in to Chi-Town Weekend every week right here on IE Sports Radio, your direct feed for all that is sports.
1: Number Two of set point here on IE Sports Radio, your direct feed for all that sports. Definitely do check out all of our amazing shows, such as Shytown Weekly with Amkark, which goes on one hour before this show goes live weekly, primarily. We also have Let's Find About DMV Sports with Mike Pat, that goes on every Friday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 9 p.m. Eastern, and we also have Sin City Sports with Kale Henderson, that goes on every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Pacific Time. 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Definitely check out all of our amazing shows. With all that said and done, let's get on into the second half of Set Point. So, we have some NCAA women's volleyball schedules to go over. Because now that the NCAA men's and beach volleyball season is done, the cycle is about to restart as beach volleyball is about to. Well, not beach volleyball. Women's volleyball is about to take place as. Spring season is officially done, and soon it's going to be summer season, and then eventually it's going to be indoor women's volleyball season. So we had two – well, last week we had a a schedule drop in terms of Creighton, but unfortunately I had a lot of volleyball to get into, and I could not get to it. Today we had ourselves the Kentucky women's volleyball schedule to that just dropped, which was big time right there. And I also found out that Long Beach State's women's volleyball non-conference schedule had been released. So we'll start off with Creighton first because Creighton is perennially an NCAA tournament team. So for Creighton, they kick off their season on with an exhibition match on Saturday, August 19th against Northern Colorado. And that is going to be at home. Then they play... Loyola of Chicago to start their season on Friday, August twenty fifth, and I want to say that it's going to be at Duke University. It doesn't really say, but it is what it is. And then they have Purdue the night, the day before, the day after, which honestly, that's going to be big time right there. That's that's two pretty good teams right there. That's two NCAA teams right off the bat that they're facing off against in their opening weekend. So that's huge right there for Creighton. And it's going to be played in Indiana. So they're playing at Purdue Fort Wayne. Or not Purdue Fort Wayne, Purdue. i got to get my mind off of NCAA men's volleyball. Anyway, so it's basically the Reamer Club extra special premiere. So the first match is Loyola versus Creighton. And then for Creighton, they play at Purdue. And then they close out the... Reamer Club extra special premier against Duke University. Then they have the Blue Jay Invitational where they will be playing University of Northern Iowa, if not Northern Illinois, in a double header as their second matchup is actually or that's actually no. They're they're playing Ball State to start off as the first of a double header is actually LSU versus Northern Iowa. Then you have Ball State, or Northern Illinois. Then you then Creighton plays LSU on Saturday, September 2nd. The day before, they play Ball State on September 1st, which is a Friday. Then they play Northern Illinois on Sunday. So, that's basically NCAA tournament teams galore. LSU made the tournament, and... Northern Illinois made the tournament. The only team that didn't make the tournament was Ball State, but I digress. Then on Wednesday, September 6th, Creighton heads on the road to Lincoln to play Nebraska. Now, last year, they obviously played Nebraska at the at the CHI Health Center. But this time, they will be heading down to Lincoln to play Nebraska. That's going to be big time right there. Then after that, they have the Omaha in the where they play Omaha on Friday at the Baxter Arena, and then on Sunday, they play Iowa State. Then after that, they play in the Diet Coke Classic, which is a yearly tournament that Minnesota hosts, as they play High Point on Friday, September 15th, and then on September 16th, a Saturday, they play at Minnesota, which... Last year was the first time in a while that Minnesota did not win the Diet Coke Classic. Then they open up Big East Conference play at Butler on September 22nd, a Friday. Then the day after, they're at Xavier. Then on September 29th, also a Friday, they play St. John's. Then October 1st, a Sunday, they play Seton Hall. Then on October 6th, a Friday, they are at Marquette. Circle your calendar because that's the big-time matchup right there. Then Saturday, October 7th, they're at DePaul. So that's a quick turnaround right there. Then Friday, October 13th. Ooh, Friday the 13th. Creighton plays Georgetown. Then Sunday, October 15th, they play at home against Villanova. Then on Friday, October 20th, and Saturday, October 21st, they are at Connecticut A.K. UConn and Providence. Then Friday, October 27th, and Saturday, October 28th, Creighton is at Villanova and at Georgetown. Then Creighton returns home for two home matches on Friday, November 3rd, and Sunday, November 5th. First one being against DePaul. And then the second one is a big-time matchup against Marquette. Circle that one right there just because Marquette is pretty darn good. Then on Friday, November 10th, and Saturday, November 11th, a.k.a. Veterans Day, they're at Seton Hall in St. John's, meaning they're going to be up in Pierre Moss territory, a.k.a. New York slash New Jersey. Then to close out the regular season, they are home for both those matchups. Friday, November 17th, they are against Xavier, and then Sunday, November 19th, they are home against Butler. Then they've got the big East Conference tournament, Starting on Wednesday, November twenty second, going through Saturday, November twenty fifth. So that is that for Creighton's schedule. I think it's a pretty solid schedule, if you ask me. Creighton is pretty; dark. they're a perennial t- good. They're a perennial NCAA tournament team, and honestly, I would not be surprised if they made the NCAA tournament yet again. And more often than not, whenever they even if they lose their tournament, they always schedule tough. So keep an eye on their on their RPI this year, as it's sure to be quite the fun little RPI. And it's sure to be quite high, and it's sure to benefit them quite a bit, since they're playing two Big West – or not Big West teams, uh, Big Ten teams. And they're also well, – no, three Big Ten teams, as they've got Purdue, Minnesota, and Nebraska – and they've also got LSU. They've got a Duke team that's improved. Loyola Chicago should be improved since they made the NCAA tournament last year. And Nebraska – or not Nebraska. Uh, Marquette is always a good matchup. But Nebraska is always – is kind of their in-state rival as well. All right. So that is that for – for what's their face? The schedule uh, – Creighton's schedule. Jumping go over to Kentucky's schedule – they don't have a exhibition match or it's not on their schedule, but they open up the season in they open up the season in Collins, Colorado against Colorado State on Friday, August 25th. Then on Saturday, August 26th, they head down to Greeley, Colorado to take on Northern Colorado, a team that made the NCAA tournament. Then on Friday, September 1st, this is where the big time matchups start to get be. They play Pitt at the Rupp Arena, and then they also play Pitt again on Sunday, September 3rd. So the Rupp Arena is going to be the home of the University of Kentucky Women's Volleyball, while their big gymnasium is going to get a renovation. Then on Friday, September 8th, Kentucky heads down to West Lafayette, Indiana to take on the University of Houston. And then they'll also play SMU or Purdue on Saturday, September 9th. Then on Wednesday, September 13th, they will be hitting the road to Louisville to take on those Cardinals last year's NCAA finalist. The time will be to be announced. Then on Sunday, September 17th, Kentucky will hit the road to Lincoln, Nebraska to take on the Huskers, which is their, which is a good final, Non conference tune up before the SEC play starts. As route right out the gate, they host LSU on Friday, September 22nd. And then two days after, they host Tennessee, which is going to be a barn burner. I could already tell you that. Then Friday, September 29th, they hit the road to Athens to take on Georgia. Then two days after, they head down to Tuscaloosa to take on Alabama. Friday, they head down to Columbia to take on Missouri on Friday, October 26th. Then two days after that, they head down. They head back home to host Ole Miss at Rupp Arena. And unlike years past, Kentucky is actually going to play Tennessee twice in one season as after they play Ole Miss, they get a week off before heading down to Knoxville to take on Tennessee on Sunday, October 15th. Then on Friday, October 20th, Kentucky will be back in the Rupp Arena to take on Mississippi State. Then two days after, they will be playing Arkansas at Rupp Arena. Then on Friday, October 27th, Kentucky will be heading down to the Bayou to take on LSU in Baton Rouge. And then on Friday, November 23rd, which is one week after they play LSU, they will be playing at South Carolina, and then two days after, they will be playing Florida, at Florida, at Gainesville. Then Wednesday, November 8th, they will be playing at Auburn, which is quite the funky matchup. Wednesday matchups are always so tough to tell. Then Sunday, November 12th, Kentucky will be heading back home to host Georgia. Thursday, November 16th, they head down to College Station to take on Texas A&M. Sunday, November 19th, they will be hosting Missouri. Wednesday, November 22nd, they will be heading down to Fayetteville to take on Arkansas. And how fitting for their last match of the regular season. They will be hosting Florida on Saturday, November 25th to end the regular season, which could, hence the word could, be for the SEC crown. Remember, Kentucky and Florida are, Both shared the conference title last year. So, you never know what could happen this year. Just because you've got some pretty good teams in the SEC. You never know what could happen with Auburn. You also can never know what could happen with LSU. They've got some good players coming in. Arkansas is pretty solid. Tennessee might be good, even though they lost some players. So, the SEC, I think, is going to be a true test. So we'll see what happens going forward so that is that for some for Kentucky's conference schedule and not just for her the conference schedule their schedule altogether so today I actually was given the the preseason schedule or the non conference schedule for Long Beach states women's volleyball team but over the weekend, I actually was told that Long Beach State was going to be playing Texas in their season opener. So I, at first, I didn't know if that was going to be officially true. I was thinking I was going to have to confirm that with with Tyler Hildebrand, their head, the Long Beach State women's volleyball head coach. But shout out to Spiker News at LB Spiker who sent me the picture of the preseason schedule. She was able to confirm it, and I was like, okay, this actually confirms it. Uh, yippee skippy! So, apparently, this non conference schedule was actually given out at the alumni match, which was the same weekend the NVA kicked off its weekend, which, of course, I was unable to attend because I can't be at two places at one time. But I digress. So the preseason schedule for Long Beach State women's volleyball. So right out the bat, right off the bat, they don't play on Friday, but they actually play on Saturday, August 26th, and their opponent is none other than Texas. Yes, the the Texas, the reigning NCAA champion, Texas, Jared Elliott, Texas, that Texas. They're playing at 7 p.m. Pacific time. That is a big time opponent right there. And that must mean they want to improve their RPI or make their RPI so big that they get an at-large. Or they just want to improve, or they just want to have a tough non-conference schedule altogether. But it gets better. It, it, it The toughness of their schedule doesn't stop there. The day after, Long Beach State plays LMU at 7 p.m. So it's a Sunday match, which that's going to be very rare for me. I mean, I've only covered one Sunday match, which was Penn State, UC Irvine, and Men's Volleyball. But I digress. Then on August 31st, Long Beach State will be hosting Indiana. I want to say that's going to be the Long Beach State invite, or the Mizuno tournament, just because they always seem to have that tournament around that time, like the first week of September, if not the second week of September. So Long Beach State plays... Indiana on the 31st, which is a 7 p.m. start time. Most of these matches are going to be 7 p.m. start times if it's going to be at Long Beach State. So Indiana, that's a pretty good opponent right there coming from the Big Ten. Then the day after, Long Beach State plays Washington. Now, I did not know they were playing Washington. That's another good opponent right there. Washington made the NCAA tournament. LMU made the NCAA tournament. Texas, as we all know, they won the national championship. And then the day after they play Washington, they play UCLA. So I don't know if this is going to be like a Big Ten, Pac-12, Big West crossover, but, man, that's a, that's a, that's quite the schedule right off the bat for Long Beach State. Like, Tyler Hildebrand really wants his team to compete big time, and he wants his team to, like, be ready for Big West conference play. But it gets even better. So on Sa- September 7th, which I think is a f- which is a Thursday, Long Beach State heads down to Omaha to take on the University of Nebraska Omaha, which they made the the uh, WNIT or I, I don't think it's the WNIT, the WNIVC, the Women's National Volleyball Championship Invitational or something like that. It's basically the NIT for women's volleyball. So they made that, and that's going to be a solid opponent, especially since Nebraska slash Omaha is so big in that state right there. And then on September 9th, Long Beach State will remain in Nebraska as they'll be playing University of Nebraska-Lincoln, a.k.a. the Huskers of Nebraska. So Tyler Hildebrand, once again, will be returning to his old stomping grounds to take on John Cook and the Huskers, which is going to be another big test for for the beach, which, man, that's going to be tough right there. And then on September 14th through the 16th, Long Beach State has the University of Arizona tournament, which no teams have been confirmed outside of probably the University of Arizona. But for Long Beach State, That's kind of a good schedule right there. Like, that's a tough non-conference schedule. And my thing is for Long Beach State, I would not be surprised if they actually saw improvement. Now, obviously, I saw them a few weeks ago against UCLA in a scrimmage. But that's a scrimmage. Like, UCLA wasn't at full strength. Long Beach State wasn't at full strength. But Long Beach State has quite the non-conference slate. And I kind of wonder, could this be the year they possibly, hence the word possibly, do good in Big West Conference play? Now, they finished top three, well, tied for third in Big West Conference play behind Santa Barbara and Hawaii, respectfully. But can they take that next biggest step to beating Santa Barbara at Santa Barbara? Can they beat Hawaii, which has been big time right there? That's been the big thorn in their side. I think playing Texas is kind of a big precursor and a little bit of a preview of playing Hawaii. Because when you play at Hawaii, it's so tough to win at Hawaii. And Hawaii fans are always passionate on going to Long Beach State and whatnot and other places. So there's that. But for Long Beach State and their non-conference schedule, this is a very good non-conference schedule. And their RPI could be quite high. And also... What could really help them is this tough non-conference schedule can really benefit them in terms of getting them ready for Big West Conference play. Even if they don't win some of these matchups, like Texas is going to be a very tough matchup. Nebraska is going to be a tough matchup. UCLA, I know, is going to be improved, especially since Desiree Becker. I can confirm this now from Alfie Reft. Desiree Becker is going to be on UCLA, and she is She just needs to be confirmed, and she just needs to be in the system and whatnot. Washington, I know, is going to be better next year, despite all that happened last year and being under a new head coach. LMU, I think, could see improvement. So the list goes on and on. And for Long Beach State women's volleyball, they have to do good in in non-conference play or at least see some growth because if not, then the Big West Conference is going to swallow them up whole. And they just can't afford to go five sets in the Big West Conference because if you go five sets, all bets are off. You have to take care of business in the Big West Conference because if you don't, you're toast. You're sunk. Bye-bye. All right, so that is that for Long Beach State's women's volleyball non-conference schedule. Their conference schedule has not been released to the public. All I could just tell you is that their, conference, their non-conference schedule is that right there. All right, so let's jump on over to some high school boys volleyball, just because I want to leave some time for some NVA. So for high school boys volleyball, on Saturday, unfortunately, I could not cover all of event number – or day two of event number two. As halfway through event of day two of event two, I actually had to leave to go PA announce a high school boys volleyball match. And you're probably wondering, well, why would you leave the NVA just to PA announce? Well, I got to go where the money goes. Also, this high school boys volleyball match featured probably some of the NCAA men's volleyball players of tomorrow. I mean, for it was Newport Harbor versus Miracosta, and when it comes to these two teams, this is probably one of the best high school boys rivalries in California. It has it probably goes back to like the nineteen nineties, if not the nineteen eighties. It has had legendary rivalry matches and probably some of the better players in years past. And it's probably had some of the better coaches like Dan Glenn of Newport Harbor and Michael Cook. Cook is now an assistant coach for the Mustangs, while Dan Glenn is no longer coaching on the boys' side of Newport Harbor. But this match did not disappoint. And I enjoyed PA announcing this match as Newport Harbor eventually wound up winning the match. The first set, they just straight up stomped on MiraCosta. They just served so tough it's like they played like an NCAA men's volleyball team. They served like an NCAA men's volleyball team, and they set the tone like an NCAA men's volleyball team. Second set, Miracosta kind of reestablished themselves. Now, Miracosta's got some really talented guys. I know they've got two guys that are committed to college uh, in terms of playing men's volleyball. Victor Loyola is going to Long Beach State, and Shred Rosenthal, like I mentioned early in the – show, he is going to be going to Hawaii. And that's huge right there. Six-foot-nine setter, who's also playing opposite, he's basically the same height as Andrew Rowan. He could be groomed as a possible replacement for Jakub Tele. But, honestly, I'm looking too far ahead. Anyway, so Miracosta improved in that second set, but then Newport Harbor, despite trailing by five despite dodging a set point and despite needing four set points, won that second set 25 or 28, 26. They won the first set 25, 15. Then in the, in the third set, it had quite a bit of everything. They got, it had a, a red card being shown to a player. Um, it had teams going back and forth. It was like a heavyweight boxing match, but for Miracosta they took that third set 25, 22 and, You could see the belief in their team and in their fans. And I was thinking, if Miracosta forces a fifth set, all bets are off. And Miracosta is going to have all the momentum. And it looked like it was kind of going to go to the fifth set. Miracosta led early on the set. Newport Harbor tied it up at 7-7. Miracosta led 19-16. And I'm thinking, oh, this one might be going 5. But then Newport Harbor starts serving really tough and they eventually took the lead late in the set it was tied 22-22 eventually but then Newport Harbor scored the last three points probably because they were serving really tough and they blocked well and, and they eventually put the match away off of a kill from the right side from their use from their UC Santa Barbara bound player Riggs guy as Newport Harbor took that fourth set, 25-22, and the match. It's tough to win at Newport Harbor. For, in the defense of Miracosta, it's so tough to win at Newport Harbor. The ceiling is so low, and it's just really tough to play there. And the crowd was super raucous. So I give Miracosta a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, but it was tough for both teams. Both teams had to deal with the low ceiling, and in years past, Miracosta has had to deal with it as well. So, for Miracosta, it it was a tough loss, but I will say this, their season's not over. They qualified for the SoCal Regionals, and we will see them in a couple weeks. As for Newport Harbor, they will be playing Corona Del Mar in the CIF Southern Section Finals this Saturday. Now, remember when I told you all last Tuesday, don't be surprised if Corona Del Mar beats Loyola? It happened. Corona Elmar Mar beat Loyola 25-23, 27-25, 16-25, and 25-22 to advance to the CIF Southern Section Division One Championship. It happened. And honestly, Corona Mar is just such a good team. I've seen them in action. George Bruning, who's going to UC Santa Barbara, fantastic player. Sterling Foley, only a junior committed to USC, fantastic player. And even though USC or not USC, uh, Corona del Mar is starting like lib- a sophomore at libero in Broken Glen, a sophomore at setter in Ryan Gant. CDM still has a lot of good upperclassmen like Caden Kavanaugh, Kade Alacano, both are middles. They've also got other good key players that fit the bill to help out their team like Reed McMullen. Everett Wilton, I think, comes in to, like, serve every now and then. And for me, I think Corona Del Mar has done a fantastic job. Now, last year was a very tough year. I mean, last year they were good, but then in the second half of league, they kind of fell apart. And that's no disrespect to them and their head coach, Katie Thompson. I think that Corona Del Mar is a fantastic team. It's just that they kind of needed to take their lumps from last year and now they they've established themselves and i think with them they're now one win away from being CIF Southern Section champions but for Newport Harbor they're also one win away from being CIF Southern Section champions let alone repeating so here's my thing Newport Harbor do i really want to make a prediction for Newport Harbor Corona Del Mar in the CIF Southern Section Boys Volleyball Division 1 final I have to, even though I've whiffed on UCLA, Hawaii in the men's volleyball championship. And then I whiffed on UCLA winning the NCAA beach volleyball championship, which TCU didn't even make the championship. And I predicted them to make it to the final. I got to make a prediction for Corona Del Mar, Newport Harbor. It's in my DNA. So my thing is this. Newport Harbor is a fantastic team. They serve the ball tough. When they're serving tough, you you could possibly at the, be at the mercy of them if your serve-receive is not right. And if they're serving tough, then you got to find the adjustment to better yourselves. For Corona Omar, they're kind of the same deal. I just feel that they kind of have a Two he- they just kind of have that two-headed monster, but Reed McMullen has as a good th- third option, and Caden Kavanaugh and Kate Alcano definitely free up space in the middle. The same can be said for Newport Harbor with their middle blockers and Jack Barry, who's only a sophomore, and Lucas Johnson. R- Luca Kerchie is a fantastic outside hitter, and Jake Reed also is a great second option. He could play left side or right side, and he could hit hit the bick really well. Riggs guy also a great option on the right side. I see him playing right side more often than not, and he does great. And Newport Harbor has their libero position established in Walker Vasic. Corbin Francisco has done a fantastic job as the, at the center position. I saw him playing that position last year and the previous year, but now he's taken the center position and ran with it. So. They also have other good key pieces that come in, like Jack Vondere, who serves really tough. Race Barton also can be a streaky server for Newport Harbor. For Kronomar, they also have streaky servers as well. Here's my thing. It's going to come down to who makes the less mistakes. Whoever makes the fewer mistakes, whoever passes the best, whoever serves the toughest, whoever can go on the late runs late in the set or establishes a run at a certain point in the set is going to win the match. Who do I think is going to win? I think i got to give the edge to Newport Harbor. Now, for those that know me personally, you're probably thinking, oh, Taron's picking them because he went to Newport Harbor. I have ties to both teams. IPA announced for Corona Omar and IPA announced for Newport Harbor part-time. I definitely am not being biased here, but for Newport Harbor, they've got a whole lot going for them. They ha- they played in a very tough pool. Now, I'm not trying to say Corona Del Mar's pool was tough in the Southern section. Like, Loyola is no joke. Beckman was pretty good, and so was Edison. But when you look at Newport Harbor's pool, where they had to battle adversity against Huntington Beach, that is not easy, having to play a league rival for the second time in eight days. And then you have to play a MiraCosta team that was at full strength. That's never, ever, ever easy. Especially when the first time when Newport Harbor beat them, that was when MiraCosta was nowhere near full strength. So for Newport Harbor, I give them the edge in terms of experience, not just within, in terms of like their entire team. Like, Corona Omar is going to have no players with with finals experience. Newport Harbor has been in the finals the past five seasons that have had a CIF Southern Section Finals in boys volleyball. You also got to remember that 2020, there were no CIF Southern Section boys volleyball finals. So for Newport Harbor, I give them the edge in terms of experience. And then their coaching staff also has the – Boxes checked in experience. Now, Crowd Omar has some coaches that have coached in CIF finals, like their assistant coaches, Sam Stafford and Jack Stafford, have also coached in CIF Southern Section semifinals as assistant coaches. And then I think Billy Crow was also an assistant coach. I'm not entirely sure. But honestly, I'm not going to use that as a full fledged experience. I'm not going to use that as a big time experience key factor right there, but I just think experience on the team, in terms of finals experience, is going to going to be what truly matters. And that was what mattered back in 2018 when Corona Del Mar beat Newport Harbor. Like Newport Harbor had the wins in the regular season going up to that point. They had not lost a match. But then Corona Del Mar, we all had to remember, they were in the finals last year, and the year before, and then the year after that, or the year before that. So... For the Sea Kings, now the shoe is on the other foot. Newport Harbor has the finals experience. And it's more so in terms of their coaching staff as well. So I'm going to predict Newport Harbor to beat Corona Mar in the CIF Southern Section Finals. I would not be surprised if Corona Omar either won or they gave Newport Harbor the ugliest match of all time. All right, that is that for some CIF Southern Section boys volleyball championship. And no matter what happens, I have respect for both programs, and I'm happy to have ties with both programs and to know the coaches of both programs, assistant coaches and head coaches. All right, let's jump to some NVA before I send you all on your way because we are nearly two hours into this whole, this podcast. So we had the NVA this past weekend, and. You obviously can go back and look at the recaps of every match just because it was being live-streamed at Long Beach City College. This was the first weekend we saw live-streams. But I got to cover it as I basically live-tweeted just because the NVA doesn't really have that Twitter presence. And we don't really have... An I don't think there is really an NVA Twitter presence or anyone else that covers the NVA on Twitter. So... There's that right there, so... First match we had was the Inland Empire Matadors and the Puerto Rico Pythons. And Larry B says it was a show in Long Beach. Oh yeah, indeed. It was definitely a show. I can only imagine what next year might be like if the NVA continues to have these matches in, at Long Beach City College. And then next year it's going to be the NCAA men's volleyball tournament at Long Beach State. Ooh boy. That's going to be quite something. But The Inland Empire Matadors defeated the Puerto Rico Pythons 25-19, 19-25, 25-17, and 25-23. I thought it was going to go five sets, but then Cesar Medina, that dude is him for the Matadors. He had 17 kills, seven service aces. He was just on one in that fourth set. The Pythons were led by Jair Alexander, who had 19 kills, two service aces, unfortunately, the Pythons just fell short into forcing a fifth set, and they were still missing some key pieces, which was kind of to be expected, but it is what it is. Then the second matchup we had was the Orange County Stunners taking on the Chicago Untouchables. The Stunners won 25-23, 22-25, 25-23, and 29-27. The Stunners won off of a walk-off service ace from Tanner Woods, who actually got to make his debut in the NVA after missing the previous event? This was another match that I thought was going to go five sets, but the Stunners decided, nah, let's end it in four. Or as Nick England would call them, the Stunner, Stunner, as the Untouchables, or the Stunners, were led by Matt Hilly, who had 12 kills, Tanner Woods had 11 kills, Shane Beamer, 9 kills. And then Nick West and Damari Lenore each had 8 kills. For the Untouchables, they were led by Joshua Blair, who had 15 kills. Hank Payne and Andrew Cohut each had 14 kills. And Daniel Venegas and Grant Milski each had 9 kills. Unfortunately, it was just not enough for the Untouchables. Third match we had on Friday, we had the Texas Tyrants taking on the Philadelphia Founders. First set was won by the Tyrants, 26-24. The second set actually was won by the Founders 25-22. It was actually the first set won by the Founders in their tenure as a program. Then in the third set, it was another barn burner as they wound up winning that third set 28-26. And then the fourth set, the Tyrants said they had enough of playing around in the fourth set as they wound up winning that fourth set 25-20. It was the only non-close Set outside of like set two, but that was still fairly close. So there was that. Ryan Mather and Jake Langloy led the way for the Tyrants with 15 kills apiece. Austin Matawatia, the aka the Flying Hawaiian, chipped in seven kills, three blocks, and three service aces. The Founders were led by, I'm gonna probably butcher this guy's name, Piotr Namio, Namio. I'm sorry if I butchered that name, but Pyotr Nami Otko, as he had 14 kills. Jeff Nelson had 12 kills. And then Nate Reynolds and Sean Dillon each had 9 kills. But unfortunately, it was not enough for the Founders, as they moved to 0 3 on the season. The Tyrants moved to 3 0, as the last matchup of Friday. Featured the Las Vegas Ramblers taking on the San Diego Wild. On paper, I thought this was going to be a five-set thriller. But the Ramblers stunned everybody as they wound up sweeping the Wild, Nick England's former team, 25-21, 39-37, and 25-20. That second set was the most points scored in any set this season. Like, that second set, 39-37, that could have actually been one entire match, which... That 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 combined for 76 points. Like I said, it could have been one entire match where it could have been 25 nothing, 25 nothing, and 25-1. But the Ramblers pulled off the upset against the San Diego Wild, handed the Wild their first loss of the season. As the Ramblers were led by Felix Chapman, who had 14 kills. Jalen Penrose had 13 kills. For the Wild, they were led by Joel Auerkamp, who had 14 kills. Uchenna Ofoa added seven kills in three blocks. Unfortunately, it was just not enough as the Ramblers pulled off the win over their former owner slash head coach slash the do-it-all man. So there was that right there. Then in, in day two, we had the New Jersey Freedom taking on the Los Angeles Blaze. And long story short, the Freedom socked it to the Blaze as they wound up Sweeping them, (laughs) it it was not really close. And this is no disrespect to the Los Angeles Blaze, but the Blaze were not at full strength. As the Freedom were led by Jared Ray, who had a whopping 24 kills, while Tim Furter had 8 kills, Charles Belvin led the Blaze with 11 kills. So it was no surprise that the Freedom, who was 2-0 going into that match, won that one. Next matchup we had was the Orange County Stunners taking on the Florida Southern Exposure. The Stunners wound up winning that match 25-18, 19-25, 25-21, and 25-16. This was kind of a match full of runs, but in the end, the Stunners wound up winning. There was like a key run in every set, which spurred the winning team to winning said set. As the Stunners were led by Eddie Mushikian, who had... 12 kills, while Damani Lenore and Kevin Gear each had 10 kills. Tanner Woods added 9 kills. As for the exposure, Zach Meyer had 15 kills, Connor Hanks had 11 kills, and Sam Jackman had 10 kills. So unfortunately I could not, I, this was the moment where I unfortunately missed out on the, the last two matches of day 2. But the Philadelphia Founders wound up winning its first ever NVA match as they beat the Inland Empire Matadors, Larry B., I'm sorry, 25-19, 25-14, 25-27, and 25-21. Piotr Namiotko had 15 kills while Jeff Nelson had 14 kills. So it was a tough loss for the Matadors. That could have been a big-time win right there. But unfortunately, it was not meant to be, as the Matadors were led by Cesar Medina, who had 13 kills, while <laughs> while their next kill leader had 10 kills. But it, it's, it's all good for the Matadors. And then their second matchup, and then the last matchup of the night was the Utah Stingers reverse-sweeping the Chicago Untouchables 20-25, 11-25, 25-23, 25-19, and 15-13. The Stingers were led by Sam Cobran, who had 16 kills. Inavo Ramiro had 15 kills. For the Untouchables, they were led by Joshua Blair and Ramon Matos, who each had 13 kills. And then Grant Maleski added 9 kills and 6 blocks to go along with 3 service aces. So the Untouchables... Larry B, Larry B in the chat room. He says, "Are the untouchables really untouchable?" Oh gosh. That it that was that might have been. That's that's the best pun right there. Larry B says that in the uh chat room. He says, "Are the untouchables really untouchable?" Best comment ever. <sighs> that 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 was amazing right there. I'm sorry Larry B that 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 that, that made my night right there. Are the untouchables really untouchable? <laughs> well, not this weekend. They went 0-2. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Larry B. says they're the freaking Raiders of the NBA. <laughs> oh, no. You <We> can't... <laughs> oh, you can't say that. Oh, no. Oh, Oh that's that's pretty funny right there. Oh anyway Anyway. Um Alright, trying to r- r- composure time. Anyway, so for the day three we had the Texas Tyrants sweeping the Puerto Rico pythons. Unfortunately I I being the clumsy oaf that I am Lost the stat sheet for the the box score of the on for the Pythons Tyrants match, but I can confirm that Chris Hall, a former USC setter, did start in his first match, and he put forth a great fe- great effort for the Texas Tyrants as he got to set the likes of Austin Matautia, Ryan Mather, and Jake Langloy, who was basically the three headed monster of the team for the Pythons Jair Alexander was the man that led the Pythons in that match. So, unfortunately for the Pythons, they finished the weekend Owen they finished the weekend Owen and 2 and they're still in search of their first win of the season. Hopefully for their sake they can get it. The Texas Tyrants are a whopping 4-0 as they're still one of few teams that are still undefeated. Jumping over to this next matchup, we had the Las Vegas Ramblers taking on the New Jersey Freedom. So this one actually was another reverse sweep as the the Ramblers reverse swept the New Jersey Freedom 20-25, 22-25, 25-15, 25-22, and 15-13. The Ramblers almost lost this matchup as I want to say it was like 14-10 in set five, and then the Freedom scored three straight points. But then Gert Lisha, being the very tall setter, he finished the match off of a dump kill, and that was how the Ramblers wound up reverse-sweeping the New Jersey Freedom. It was a huge win for the the Ramblers as they're now in first place in their division. As the Ramblers were led by Jalen Penrose, the former Penn State standout, who had 24 kills, 6 service aces, and 5 blocks, Felix Chapman added... 13 kills and 8 blocks, as he actually switched from middle blocker to... Or he actually switched from outside hitter slash opposite to middle blocker. And then Kevin Vaz added 10 kills and 4 blocks. For the Freedom, they did not have Joe Norman in addition to John Cunningham, their libero, as they were led by Jared Ray, who had 21 kills. Ian Cap had 9 kills. And Tom Burrell had 8 kills and 4 blocks. Cap also contributed three kill, or three aces and three blocks as well. And Tim Furriter had six kills, four blocks, and one service ace. Moving on to the Utah Stingers and Florida Southern Exposure. The Stingers wound up winning that matchup 28-26, 25-20, and 25-23. As the Stingers are 2-0, and, oh, and they have the Brothers Coburn in place as... And Alvo Ramiro led the way with 13 kills, while Kevin Cobrin added 11 kills. He just got done with his season at USC, so he is certainly not rusty, that's for sure. And Sam Cobrin had 9 kills and 2 blocks. For the exposure, Zach Meyer led the way with 14 kills, while Sam Jackman added 7 kills and 2 blocks. So it was a tough weekend for the Florida Southern Exposure as they're now sitting at last place behind the Matadors and the Ramblers who are in first place in their division. And then the last matchup of the weekend was the San Diego Wild versus the Los Angeles Blaze. It was kind of an interesting match, but the Wild swept the Blaze. The first two sets were rather close as the Wild had to win that first set, 27-25. Second set, the Wild were down 22-19, but scored the last six points to win that second set. And then the third set, the Wild just kicked it into high gear, and they wound up winning that third set, 25-18. The Wild were led by Joel Auerkamp, who had 10 kills. Uchenna Ofoa had 9 kills and 3 blocks. And then Lior Schiffer had 8 kills to go along with 2 blocks. For the Blaze, Charles Belvin led the way with twelve kills and three blocks, while Andrew Dubay added nine kills. Josh Sullivan added seven kills for the Blaze, who, like the Pythons, are un- are winless in the NVA. So there's only one team that's undefeated in the NVA, and that is the Texas Tyrants. I most likely will be doing a little bit of a preview on them before event number three happens. So keep an eye on that. If not, maybe I'll do like a little bit of a poll on who we should have as a feature. It's either going to be the Tyrants, the Rambler. Well, actually, no, not the Ramblers. The Tyrants, the Stingers, the Stunners, or the Wild. But it'll probably be the Tyrants since they're the only team that's undefeated at this point of the NVA. But on that note, that is it for the NVA portion of the show. And, ladies and gentlemen, that is going to do it for this week's episode of Setpoint. I know we are two hours in, but we had a lot of volleyball to discuss. It is that time, however, to drop the beat because I'm about to dip like a banana in chocolate. You feel me? Thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Setpoint. I really do appreciate everybody tuning in. If you listen live, I appreciate you. If you listen on playback, I appreciate you. separate, I will separate for these, for those that definitely want to listen to the inside part, thank you to the chat room that listens live, it is Adam Karnick, Mike cat and my boy Larry the top of I appreciate you tuning in Larry live, for everyone here at IE Sports Radio, this is Taren Rodriguez signing off, have yourself a great rest of the weekend, I will see you all Friday for the SoCal Twin Show, We have got